Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today, Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Raging egos, luchadors, and what killed more wrestlers than steroids? You listen to them, now hang out with us. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. You're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz begin. Yes, hello everybody and welcome to After 83 Weeks. We're jamming out to the Nitro theme right now, and tonight we are talking about Sold Out 1998. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the show where we break down all the big reveals, the fan reactions. This is for all the super fans of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And please allow me to introduce you to the rest of my panel tonight. He is the man who runs the YouTube channel for all your favorite wrestling legends. His name is Steve Kaufman. Hello, it is my name. I am here on the channel. I didn't have anything to say. I was like, the sheep, I'm that. I'm, I want to be that person. All right, no arguments on that one. Let's see how we do here. He is a 15-year veteran 13. of the business. Not quite. All Not right. quite. Get in there. And also the host of the SmackDown After Show right here on AfterBuzz TV. Say hello to Christian Rosenberg. Well, hello there. How are you? Oh, yeah. Well, great to have you back. It's great to be here back. And next to you, another another great guy. I call him the encyclopedia of professional wrestling knowledge, but uh, I think everybody on the indie scene calls him Devastator 2. Please welcome George Hermosa. You just, you just Vanessa Williams me. Well, I know you hate that name, and I know you're not a huge fan you know of your own you, gimmick. You saved so. the best for last. Oof. Oh, Get cute. It. Wow. That was a way homer, man. Wow. That was... We went way back for that one, and we are going way back to 1998 (laughs) tonight. But before we do that, we want to remind you guys all to subscribe to the 83 Weeks channel, our home for now, which we love. Give us a little thumbs up, and you can also find us if you would rather listen, not look at our gorgeous faces. We are on Apple Podcasts as well. We would love a rating, comment, and uh, make sure you subscribe there, too. You never want to miss any of this juicy stuff because, as I've failed to mention for the first several minutes of this show, the Eric Bischoff will be calling in a little bit later answering all the questions that you guys have sent to us on social media this week. But before that, there is a ton to talk about. On Sold Out 1998, we got a great lead-up on this week's episode. We are on the heels of Starcade 1997, which we also covered recently. WCW does not have a champion, and that controversy is creating some cash. This one started off with the conversation about why Sold Out wasn't going to be an NWO Sold Out show. Did you guys get the answer that you expected from that? Kind of. He kind of covered that last week when I asked him that question about when he first thought of Sold Out 97, was that supposed to be a one-off? And he said it was supposed to be a one-off. So knowing what I knew then, it didn't surprise me now that like it wasn't an NWO Sold Out. I figure they dropped that concept. And I thought, again, he he acknowledged it. A lot of, a lot of the feedback that he got was that it just looked really cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish they would have gone back to that cool factor as opposed to it looking like every other pay-per-view you know, out there. Except for Halloween Havoc. That always had good setup. I loved Halloween Havoc. Yeah. And Bash at the Beach as well. 
Well, we got a little a little insight here from Eric Bischoff when he tells us that this is the time when it stopped being fun. <laughs> I know you all probably out there say, how is that possible when you're working in professional wrestling? But he says, this is the time when everybody's breathing down his neck. We hear about ad sales. They're talking about $100,000 house shows. And basically, he's like, not here for it. We hear about this meeting where he's supposed to tell everybody no more low blows, no more lewd gestures, clean up your language. But even he himself wasn't buying it. What were your thoughts on this, guys? Um, I think he was ultimately correct. And not believe it that... He was dealing with ad sales people who, if they're wrong, still get to have a job at ad sales. That's so true. Like, ad sales people are, na- like, pretty much nameless and faceless. Like, they're not going to lose their job in Time Warner as it becomes AOL, as it becomes whatever it becomes. Whereas they get to they get to kind of squeeze him and say, nope, you have to change your entire program. And if it fails, your name will be mud because you put your name all over the program. I mean, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's true because you know if if you're if you're doing okay on something, yeah, you you obviously have certain guidelines you got to follow. But when you start getting more and more popular and become the most popular show on that network, well, now you're our flagship. Now you're representing us. So now we need to make sure that you do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And, and it tell- was because of what Bischoff was doing that WCW was doing so well, and he kind of thought the opposite of the family friendly stuff was what was working for and them. And especially because you know Nitro going up, it's like everybody kind of wants a piece of that now. Oh. And especially with such a big conglomerate like Turner Broadcasting, there was a lot of people that can say, oh, I want a piece of that. I want a piece of that. You know, it's not just like, oh, it's wrestling. No, no. It's like, oh, that's number one. I want some of that. Well, and also heading into the merger, they turned to every division, whether it was profitable like his or not like a lot of other shows on TNT, Mm -hmm. and said, here's how you'll be 80% more profitable. And it's, but that's a bad idea. <laughs> it's a bad idea, and I'm already profitable. You should just squeeze the. You should squeeze the thing that isn't profitable. Have you seen what we did Double. with the net with the hotline? Like, <laughs> like, like we make your money off a of 900 number. Like, like if you're talking about doubling, I can't imagine a hotline for like the other TNT shows. <laughs> <laughs> the Robin Hood, the New Adventures of Robin Hood Hotline. With Mean Gene Okerlund. Yes, Mean Gene has to do them all. What was a Hogan movie? Assault in Devil's Island or something like that? Thunder in Paradise Hotline. Yeah. We'll do that one too. Well, not sure who was the EP on that one, but we do know this is also the time where Eric Bischoff gets his role as executive producer, or at least that's what he's. This is where he chose to talk about it on the show, shall we say? <laughs> and um, we get some we get some real juicy stuff here. Tony Schiavone wanted the job. A couple other guys. He sort of made it sound like maybe even Jim Ross wanted, although he didn't outrightly say that. But that WCW was kind of hell bent on hiring a not wrestling guy. Was, this, he, was he talking about ninety eight or ninety three? Um. He went back a little bit on this one, but it's still juicy, Hermosa. Of course, of course. um, Also, he himself, including his book, the the timeline's a little murky at best over when he became vice president, executive producer, and president. Like, those days I've heard different variations of. But I think he did a good job, and people who are claiming he's a politician would say he did a great job of convincing the Turner people that he wasn't a wrestling guy. Whereas he'd tell you he was a wrestling guy and they just didn't. He was a wrestling guy that knew business and sales. Mm -hmm. But I I found this juicy. (laughs) I I love it when you guys say juicy. (laughs) Well, that wasn't all. Oh, and also that he's never talked to those guys about it. Ooh. That's why, oh, right? Because sometimes he's like, oh, and even last week, remember, he's like, oh, me and Chavo were texting about that. Or, oh, you know, so-and-so and I have, we've talked about it since then and we're cool. He was like, nope, we've never had the conversation. Well, there's some things that aren't meant to have a conversation. If it comes up, it comes up. 50,000 subs, Tony, will be on this channel. 
I can't speak for Eric, but that's a pledge I would like to pitch to Eric. How about we just get the two of them in a room together without telling them our evil plan? And then Set we go, up a hey, camera and lock the door. How about that time? Yeah. <laughs> how about that time when you didn't get the job? 100,000 subs. <laughs> well, from who didn't get the job to who got her butt fired, this was really, really good about Deborah McMichael. Ooh. Right? Because apparently Queen Deborah got a little big for her britches. You know, I, I love it when they use the word high maintenance to describe a woman because that never happens. No, never. Were you guys curious about what had happened to her? No, I, I, I want. I wanted. I wanted Deborah. Like as far as like the women valets, managers over this time frame in WCW and WWE, that was the one that I was praying would leave quicker than any other at the time. Yeah, just to me, she was never entertaining. She, it, she, to me, especially in WCW when she first started. Mm-hmm. She looked completely clueless of what was going on. And to be fair, she was accompanying her husband at the time, Mongo, mm-hmm. who also was pretty clueless as yeah. to what was going on. So it's not 100% her fault. Well, but but I, it was just one of those things where it wasn't one of those where I want to boo you because you're so annoying like a Vicky Guerrero. It was one of those where, why are you on my TV? Fair. Um, I also think if you're a valet, there is an archetype for that, and it's Miss Elizabeth. And if you're a woman's wrestler, there are many archetypes like that, including mm-hmm. a, including in WCW would be Alondra Blaze. Sure. Mm-hmm. She fits neither of those archetypes. Right. And she's not even somewhere in the middle. She's just, like, far left of valet. And then there's the argument of, oh, well, you can create your own person, which is fine. Then create it. Yeah. Because you weren't doing that. Not at all. She was no. just... A, she was I, trying I liked to be that a role. role. I, li- I liked her role. I thought she fit her role good. I mean, if that's the reaction that you're that she got from you, then I think she did her job perfectly fine. So, not, so the reaction like, of me changing like, the channel to Raw. It's not like she was... It's not like... There was a lot of things that made us change the channel to Raw. But it's not, it's, not like, it's not like she was there to, like, make you like her. You know? It's like, oh, there's Deborah, Like, you know? And I, I thought she fit good no, with that horseman like, mold. But of like, like I was saying that example with Vicky Guerrero, she still made. I was annoyed that she was on TV. I was, but I wanted to hear what she had to say. She only said two words. <laughs> no, once in a while she actually said more than that. Okay, she was on TV for like a year before she got those two words right. over. And the, the, like, that was uh, a time where she was very frustrating. All right, so you guys weren't big fans of her. <laughs> no. What did you think about Kevin Green as a wrestler? I didn't think it was that bad. I think he was as good as he would, as, as a football player would be. Well, according to Bischoff, he had that it factor, and well, the cra- he got reaction from the crowd, and he yeah. and he knew how to do the the babyface style of get pump the crowd up, which is something that is a lot harder than it looks. Mm-hmm. And he definitely had that. Obviously, he he wasn't exactly Ric Flair and Sting in the ring, mm. but but he was able to still draw reaction from the crowd. Which is really, at the end of the day, the most important thing. Yeah, to have his look. To have his look and to be able to understand that this is all a show and it's about these people reacting how I want them to, that's like 80% of the job. Mm-hmm. And like he has that. Like he had those two things. I, but I also don't think he could have. It sounded like he didn't want the pay decrease, essentially, mm-hmm. for the dates. Because you would, you would have to do that 300 dates a year at probably less than the NFL was paying him. Oh, not, for sure. Not in models. WCW. Well, not three hundred, yeah. but maybe, maybe like one hundred fifty. Yeah, yeah hundred. But still making less money than he would yeah. in the NFL. One hundred and fifty dates a year is way is like quadruple the expectation of an NFL player. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's so true. So he he never quite made his way back to WCW, but a couple guys who did, Luis Piccoli and John Nord, are back or there for the first yeah. time. 
But um, did you – all right, this Luis Piccoli thing, <laughs> is that something we, you knew? Yeah, everybody knew. Like yeah. he's the guy who makes the Mexico runs. Yeah, that's why they yeah. wanted him there. Which, There's by the way, there. I don't know if anybody remembers rumors, Luis Piccoli being on MTV singled out. What? No. You guys don't remember that? No. no. What? He was always like, because you remember like they had like the, you all, we all remember Single Down, right? Yeah. They had like the opening round where there was like that big crowd yeah. of people in the back. He was always in the back. Because he, he lived in L.A. Every he episode? Was in LA. He trained at Jesse Hernandez a few episodes. <laughs> but he, he's from L.A. Like I said, he trained at... You uh, owe us just, links, sir. I mean, I'm not trying to find one, but, but yeah, I guarantee you, you can, uh, he was on a couple episodes of Singled Out. I just never watched old Singled Out But he, he was never on the next round. He was always in that first round elimination. Always in that first round where they say... Where everybody just walks by. Where, it's like, like, a, where it's like boxers or briefs, and they're like, briefs! And then half the room is like, yeah. bye! Yeah. Yeah. And they only get one save. I love that show. <laughs> Well, this, we is, this is where we yeah. get. <laughs> I'm surprised they don't bring it back with all the other shows. Go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, we have to talk about people dying now. Settle down. <laughs> All right, well, listen, There's a segue. listen Bischoff, Bischoff explains that somas, sleeping pills, painkillers really killed more wrestlers than steroids. That's the, the misconception. That's the kind of the stereotype is like, oh, everybody in the 90s was, what's the word they use? Gassing? Yeah, they were juicing. gassing. They were juicing. They were juicy meant something different back then, and, oh, like and that really it was it, the steroids weren't as big of a problem as the prescription pills were. That's been yeah. cleaned up immensely in the professional wrestling business. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I think the kind of I think the kind of person who watched wrestling in the nineties and wanted to become a wrestler in the aughts that we live in now. Mm-hmm. It bred a different, like the. I, I feel like there's a part of it. The product bred a different kind of person, mm-hmm. alongside like very stringent, like just anti-drug mentality in a locker room in general. But uh, prescription drugs is still a prescription drugs is still a very big problem in America. In just America, a, yeah. But like in among among people, um, athletes, in, well, <laughs> among, among, among people who don't get drug tested for their jobs. Well, yes, marijuana is also a big problem in there. That's a different topic. For I a know. Different day. <laughs> John, well, John Nord couldn't keep his hands off, and Bischoff says he could have been a big star, and that he actually thought that getting an opportunity is what would keep John Nord clean. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to think of the Berserker being a big star for WCW. Well, really? it's funny because mm-hmm. I didn't even put two two and two together that John Nord was the Berserker until Bischoff mentioned this. Really? Fair, because the Berserker. I mean, I remember obviously it was an over the top odd character, but it's just like. But he has the size, and you know, like he could have the look if he wasn't this Viking. <laughs> and and th- oh, oh, so this guy was him? Okay. And obviously, because Superstars is now on the network, and like the first thing on there is like a little mini feud between the Berserker and the Undertaker. Undertaker. When he tried to Ooh. kill him, yeah. in the the ring. right with his sword, <laughs> tried to stab him on a Saturday morning wrestling show. I remember as with a kid. Sword. I know. I remember as a kid. I was like. Because I, you know, I thought everything was scripted. I was like, "Oh my god, what if Undertaker forgot to move?" Like but, I, I, that crossed my mind but, as a kid. But, but, but <laughs> my point, my point but in this forgot is, to move. My point in this is, they wouldn't put of him with the Undertaker if they didn't feel like, "Oh, well, this could work for something." Like, all right, we're going to put him in the test because we feel he's talented enough. Uh, Giant Gonzalez, mm. let's move on. Well, he was there's. It's different when you're seven seven or whatever he was. But so okay, bring him in because he showed potential. Yeah. But then obviously. Um, drugs are bad. But they also brought in, like, Marty Jannetty. I think, I'm, I'm sure you were about to mention that. Yeah. Marty Jannetty and Jim Neidhart and whatnot. And it's like, it kind of became like a, 
mid-card rejects from WWF because he brought in, like, Rick Martel. Because remember when Rick Martel came in? I'm like, dude, he looks nothing like he did, like, the model, dude. No. Mm. You know? And it just, it was, I just thought it was a weird era for WCW where they would just bring in these former WWF guys that weren't even former world champions. I know Rick Martel's former AWA champion, but, again, the way he looked was like, man, like, this isn't the Rick Martel that I liked, no. you know? Fair. Did you guys catch in the midst of all that talk that Eric Bischoff himself admitted to taking painkillers recreationally for a time? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. that, that doesn't surprise me. Okay, it surprised me. Okay, <laughs> I, uh, I mean, like, I mean, the guy's like fifty something years old or sixty. Like, that's a long time for you to not at least like try one out. I look at it as like I don't think he was ever addicted to it. I just think like, oh, it was there. I took it just to see what it was like. And right, no, absolutely, of course, yeah. that it wasn't a problem for yeah. him. But even just that the guy in charge, you know, that it's been long enough now that he's like, yeah, you know what, I did it too. But he never bit. said when. I no, mean, I, I, I wanted think, more. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. Well, yeah, I wanted, yeah, yeah, I wanted yeah. more details. Yeah, yeah. What were you taking? When? Well, yeah. When? When would you do it? Who saw you? Did people like? I don't know. Do you have I, any? And plus, I've what, seen what, the questions. They're his, not coming. What's his <laughs> definition of like recreational drug? Because toward the end of it, he's like, yeah, if I ever saw Conan, I'll probably smoke a joint with him. So um, I, I don't know. I don't uh, know what his bowl. definition of is. he was. He was very specific. He wanted smoke to smoke a bowl. Okay. Yes. Okay. Sorry. I don't know. I think. I don't know. I think he gave us enough of his personal life about. Recreational drugs. I get enough between blue when chew talking ads. about blue chew, yeah. yeah. Between blue chew ads and him admitting that it ever happened, I think that's more than enough. So I, I shouldn't grill him in a few minutes here about it. You could. I, I mean, you I could. Would, I would rather you. you not. I'm not, but you could. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, let's hop into sold out 1998. This one had major merchandise sales. The tickets sold out in the first four hours, and they even added more tickets after that. And this one kicks off with an eight-man tag team match, the Luchadors versus a bunch of other guys. <laughs> I Lucha can versus you all Lucha. Who, if you wanted to know. Yes. <laughs> um... <laughs> Hobbit, no, it's a lot of long names. Okay, so <laughs> El Dandy was one of the names. El Dandy, mm-hmm. but this is where Bischoff really um, highlights the luchas. He gives them the credit, which back in the day everyone always said that he didn't care about them, or they guessed maybe from the way that they were booked that he didn't find them important. But he put them over hard on the show. Here's here's the perspective they come from. Mm -hmm. Yes, I have the high-octane, exciting eight-man tag in the beginning of the pay-per-view. What, what's, what's my plan tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And the answer is normally, well, I want you to have a high-octane two-three commercial break match at the nine o'clock hour. And that's all he ever, like, what's my character? What's my story? Wh who am I? Why, why am I working with these people? Like, that... Their to argument, bring excitement. But their argument becomes like, well, how do I bring excitement if you just kind of throw us in the ring at nine? To do all your Lucha stuff. That's what they're... That, they anyone who would criticize Eric's treatment of Lucha or uh, the Cruiserweights, that's the argument. I think it was just more but so... He, he was very clear that yeah. that was not how he felt. I, th I just think it was more so Bischoff. I don't think he ever saw anything more than that mm -hmm. for any of the guys. And obviously, clearly, we saw guys like Ray and Guerrero and even Chavo can be more than just a cruiserweight guy. Right, but you do also have to remember, and you know, I'm not trying to s say this to make it sound like offensive to any, but alright, well the people that did get pushed and did get mic time are the ones English. that American audience could understand. Yeah. But And our show is cancelled. Yep. No, bye guys. <laughs> no. no, but that's a, and that's not I don't know. I think I think there are a lot, of, he would tell you, there are a lot of factors that would go into this, and I'm sure there's a Cruiserweight episode coming where they're going to talk a lot about all of this. Mm -hmm. But I, um, ultimately, 
the knock on him and how he treated luchas would be specifically that you allot the slot to them and you don't expect them to ever step out of that slot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what he doesn't get sometimes when people criticize it. Well, he he wasn't criticizing the dirt sheets on this episode. He was agreeing with a lot of what they said, and that's kind of what became the conversation about Chris Benoit versus Raven, and even Rey Mysterio versus Jericho was sort of just Bischoff going, "Yeah, that was a great match. I agree." <laughs> we did. We didn't get a ton of insight on either of those. Were there things you guys would have wanted to know? Uh, yeah. We all kind of heard it before, especially with Jericho. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, we all just kind of. Yeah. Um, he, he, he's talked about Raven. He's talked about Jericho. He's right. talked a little. A little bit about Mysterio. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, obviously the interesting here was, I found it interesting on how much wrestling Ray did with a torn ACL. Yeah. Right. That's the part that I found the most interesting of this. Although uh, I think... You won, like, you won the title with a torn ACL. Mm-hmm. Like, we still... And then we had you wrestle some other events. <laughs> and we'll have you lose on a pay-per-view. Well, I think the ACL is weird that you can, like, walk on it and, like, work around it. But when you go down for the surgery, you're kind of down for months. Right. Like, from what I know about that surgery, that's not saying he isn't isn't tough for going through it. But I think I've seen a lot of folks. I think RVD had something similar with an ACL where he was able to kind of plan his exit. Man, those guys are superhuman, man. Yeah. It's unbelievable. But yes, uh, Booker T versus Rick Martel. Uh, this one the Dirt Sheets didn't like. Bishop <laughs> agreed with that. He said, you know, there was really no no story here. There was no reason to cheer. And how someone who is so focused on fan reaction all the time, like Bischoff, I'm really surprised that he would let that match happen with no story. I'm not, especially with Sarkin 98 and those random matches. I think this was probably the first time we saw a glimpse of, like, let's just put on these two guys and eh. But it almost like I, I almost feel like that match, um, um, it was Martel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That this match almost should have happened before the Jericho Mysterio match. Mm-hmm. So we have the high flying lucha match. We have the Benoit Raven match, which everyone's into. That one could kind of be in between as like a little a little filler match. Yeah. Then you bring the crowd back and go like until we go crazy, crazy, crazy. At that point, three in a row. Mm-hmm. Then the crowd's exhausted. Mm. So I think Nitro Girls even couldn't save that one. No, (laughs) Nitro Girls helped a lot, but not there. I do love when he gives them props as he did in this episode. And then I went back and watched some Nitro Girls stuff, and they were pretty good. Pretty darn good. Larry Larry Zabisco is going up against Scott Hall. And, you know, guys, this seems like a great time for, I don't know, maybe Dusty to turn heel. Why not? You know, like the greatest baby face ever, arguably, to turn heel. No big deal. I I, I enjoyed... um, Eric pretty much, like... He kind of tried to defend it a little bit, no, and then he was like, ah, f- But, like, not enough it. for Conrad to dig into him, because Conrad, like, really ramped up to this part of, like, so people like when I scream at you, and it's about to go down. He wanted to go in. And then Eric just pretty much played, like, laid over and laid dead. Like, you're right. Shouldn't have done it. <laughs> I don't have an argument for... You know, this, was, this wasn't Sting wasn't tanned argument. This yeah, like, is just a... No, no, it was a terrible idea. Dusty was tan. I turned him heel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's all it takes. Do you guys remember your reaction to that at the time when it happened as fans? Honestly, I remember being this. I don't know if I can pinpoint this a specific moment, but when when I heard like Dusty joined the NWO, I'm just like, oh, another person joined the NWO. Yeah. Now it's just like, all right, that was now the it's getting it's, it's too much. Like it's getting excessive now. Like like when is when is the point where okay, almost half the roster is NWO. This is ridiculous. But by joining NWO, you stay a heel. Yeah, that was, that was the problem. Like, if you're gonna have half the roster be NWO, at a they're certain, all heels. But at a certain point, like, 
some NWO people should just be faces therefore, that are affiliated with the NWO. Therefore, then, WCW wrestlers that were heels, I didn't find them as interesting. True. That, that really hurt a lot of... Just, yeah. That would really... Um, Man. Like John North. And it's funny because like Chris Jericho would say a few times, he's like, hey, they offered me to join the NWO, but I was like, no, like I don't want to get lost in that kind of mm. shuffle of Which like, is everybody true. being heel. Uh, and that could have changed his entire trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. And like Dusty as a figure in pro wrestling, him turning heel is on the level of Hogan. I don't know if like news stations would cover it. But well, it should be used When we look back at the career of Dusty Rose, how many times does everyone go, and then there was that time where he joined the NWO. No <laughs> one brings it up. Fair. It, no so one. many people don't even know it happened unless they go back in the network and watch it. Kind of like the six-man tag that happened after that. <sighs> yes. And then, of course, we get Nash versus the Giant, but we've heard all about that as well. You pointed out that in the Giant episode, they talked a lot about the yep. botch. Anything new there for you guys? Not no. Really. No. No. Kind of so a, let's get to... It wasn't a retread, but it was a bit... Like, oh, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk Bret Hart versus Rick <sighs> Flair. This one lived up to the expectations. Despite, despite Flair's age, uh, EB went so far as to call it so effing good, the match and the story. And um, he he uh, puts a little bow on his comments about this by calling Brett a bitter prick <laughs> about what he said in his book about Ric Flair. This one, he got hot. Yeah. He yeah. said he was going to, and he did. Yeah. I would like to like a Brett like recant book because I mean a lot's happened since 2007. Like mm. he's made up with Sean Flair, mm. like Hunter, like all these people. Where it's like, but yeah, those things that you printed or wrote, it's like they're all still there. So it's like it might ca- fall back like a, an episode like this where it says Brett pretty much, you know, had nothing good to say about Flair. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder if that would be a good strategy for Brett because there are people there are people who don't dive as deep as these podcasts who at best will read Brett's book. Because they liked Brett, and like that—that's going to be the narrative forever. Is what Brett said in that book, and I don't think he's publicly decreed a lot of the things in that book so much as he made peace with the people. Yeah, he had feelings toward. Well, that was twelve years. Yeah, it was a long time when that book came out. I mean, it's one of those things where, um, I mean, like you guys know me. To me, Brett was my idol. Brett Mm -hmm. Hart was the reason I got into wrestling. And you know, there's always like. People have someone where, like, all right, even if this guy, if this person says something and a lot of people are angry about it, I still support him because this was, like, my hero. This person was like, so, obviously, I know a lot of people have said a lot of nice things about Brett. And Brett, in his book, has said a lot of not nice things about people, too. Yeah. Um, but just for his impact, I'm like, no, I, I, I support Brett regardless. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> until, un, un, until, he, until he talks crap about me, which could very well happen soon, for all we know. But um, it's like, okay, you can say what you want. I'm still going to be behind Brett because Brett is, Brett's my guy. Like, people stand behind Hogan even with all the controversy stuff. But Hogan's still their guy. Mm -hmm. That's how I am with Brett. Well, he did say that he has a certain perspective of Brett now. Bischoff said that. But Mm. he did not elaborate on what that is. So I think he needs to be thoroughly grilled about his current relationship with Brett Hart. And, uh, oh, look at that. He'll be on the line in about 60 seconds. So (laughs) on that note, we will be back in just a few minutes with Eric Bischoff. Stay tuned. All right. Hey, Eric, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Okay. We're all fired up here. I'm going to put you on the full screen. 
All right, guys. Christy, give me a thumbs up when you're ready. All right, coming back in three, two. Welcome back to After 83 Weeks. Joining us now is the host of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. You guessed it. It's Eric Bischoff doing his best pageant wave. <laughs> right back at you, sir. How are you today? I'm good. How are you guys doing? We're great. We had a lot of fun talking about this 1998 sold-out episode. Did you have fun covering it? You know, I really did. I uh, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to prepare as much as I normally try to for a show just because of timing. Uh, but as it turned out, I think it turned out to be one of our, our better shows. It was it was really good. Conrad did a great job. Um, so I'll just dive right in on the questions. With hindsight, do you see a narrative or business reason for making Dusty Rhodes join the NWA, NWO and or turn heel? I mean, it was a stretch. Look, the idea, real simple premise at that point was to make it look like just everybody was abandoning WCW, including Dusty Rhodes. Um, that was the concept. I, I'm not so sure that in hindsight or any other site, it really made a whole lot of sense. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to take that one as a, as a hit. <laughs> uh, earlier that week, you know, five, six days before sold out, uh, on Sunday you had Roy Romo with Mike Tyson. Monday you had the whole Tyson and Austin, Tyson and Austin. Did you guys do anything to say like, oh, we need to get somebody for our pay-per-view now this, this upcoming weekend? No, no. By the time we found out about Austin and with everything else, keep in mind, you know, pay-per-views were always pretty much booked and, and promoted. A lot of the collateral material, the, the posters and all the graphics and the commercials and all the stuff that we had to get out to the pay-per-view companies had to be out there sometimes 120 days in advance. So for us to be able to react that quickly and do it on any kind of a meaningful level from a promotional point of view would have been almost impossible. So we, A, we didn't have the time and I think we were just taking kind of a wait and see and hope for the best attitude. <laughs> um, on on the on the heels of that with Tyson, as far as athletes, obviously we talked about Kevin Green uh, during this episode. I was kind of curious with, with, between Kevin Green, Dennis Rodman, Carl Malone. You had a lot of athletes that came in, but then you said Kevin Green. You know, actually considering maybe trying to do a full time. Did you ever have any contact with any other athletes that were just recently retiring that were like, you know, I, I love pro wrestling. I want to jump in. Let's see if I can get in with WCW. No, not really. I mean, keep in mind, there were also some others that came through, like William Refrigerator Perry, who was clearly out of football by that point. But none of them really expressed an interest other than Kevin uh, Green about coming in full time. I'm not, I'm not sure Kevin was really 100% serious. But um, he was serious enough to give it some real consideration. I remember sitting across at dinner from his wife, and she was kind of giving him, this, giving him the side eye. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably where it ended. Oh, that's funny. Who, ha who hasn't done that to their hubby a time or two? I bet you've gotten that one from Mrs. B. Oh, I see it every day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you mentioned on this one, this Lucha Vavum reality show that you were working on for a little while. That sounds really, really interesting. Why didn't it go? You know, I, and I wish I remember the, the ladies' names, the two really cool chicks that were really running things then. I don't know who's running it now, but there were, I'm not sure what the ownership structure, but there was two women that really were the decision makers and they would vacillate back and forth between wanting to do it and not wanting to do it. And I think in the long run, they probably made the right 
choice for them. Mm-hmm. Definitely the wrong one for me because I had that show sold. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, one cost me sold? some money, oh, ladies. What network was it going to go to? <laughs> but the idea of the show was really to to kind of um, – and you've seen these types of – they call them process reality shows where basically you're kind of behind the scenes, you know, a fly on the wall really watching these two women – uh, manage talent, create shows, dealing with all the issues that go along with putting on a live event, you know, watching the business grow, that type of thing. It's like probably every other reality format we've all seen, you know, one too many times uh, in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. But, but that's what it was. But I think this show would have done really, really well. I really do. Because uh, the ladies involved have big personalities. Clearly, all the characters coming in, the performers, were all performers. They, right. they were great characters and really unique people. I really wish we could have done it. I, I probably tried harder to get that show on the air than I did for all of the shows we actually did get on the air. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, what did you had sold it to a network or a production company or who was, who was in well, it with we, you? We had, a, we had a network that was really, really excited about it and wow. ready to make a move. But I just, the girls, and here's the, here's the answer to your question, by the way. Um, the girls, girls, the ladies didn't want to do it because in, and I think rightfully so, they felt that Lucha would have lost its, credibility mm-hmm. and its grit and its sense of uniqueness if they would have over, over commercialized it into a television show now i hated hearing that but mostly because it was true and it, was, <laughs> it was kind of hard to look him in the eye and go, no 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 now here, here's the other side of it i was at that time i was also working closely with the maloof family uh at the palms hotel uh-huh. in las vegas and we were talking early stages. Don't want to make it sound like it was a done deal, but early stages we were talking about um, having a Lucha Vavum house inside mm. of the Palms in Las Vegas. So much like you know Caesar's Palace has their kind of concert hall for Celine Dion or who's ever running through. Uh, Lucha Vavum was going to have their own kind of show house inside of the Palms Hotel. Now that would have been badass. Yeah, wow. yeah, agreed. <laughs> oh my god. Um, <laughs> at Real MD Artist asks, why did Bret Hart and Ric Flair only have one pay per view match? Uh, I don't know. Mm. You know, there's no answer as to why not. Um, I would answer that by saying, why should they? You know, I mean, you see two big <laughs> names, you have a build up, you have a great match, you have a great finish, and you move on to new stories. It's it's not usual that one would aspire to see talent you know first match second i mean event <laughs> inevitably it's going to happen over a period of time because there's only so many ways you can shift the roster around and, and have it make sense but i don't think anybody went into that saying okay now how can we get three in a row out of this or maybe a you know best five out of seven that just wasn't the idea going in this event didn't have a world title match Whenever there were pay-per-views that didn't have that match, was there any indication of buy rates going up and down, or was it effective at all about having one or not having a world title match? It would be impossible for me to give you a real honest answer, or an I'm going to give you an honest answer, but to, <laughs> to to be able to you know sit here today and go, wow, I wonder if wonder if that ever happened where when we didn't have a title match we actually lost money. I don't know that that would be the case. I I don't think so. Look, belts are belts represent stakes. You know, it used to be back in the, in, in the old days, um, <laughs> the territory system. You know, the belts signified the championship, but, but what it really signified was money. 
If you were the world heavyweight champion, you were a wealthy person. That was always communicated in the narrative of the old show, you know, but going back to 60s, 70s, early 80s even. That's changed now. You know, you never talk, you never really hear, talk, not in WWE, you never really hear champions or, or people wanting, you know, shots at the title to, ref, you know, talk about that title as because it represents their success, their, their money, the, a big money contract like you'd read about in the NFL. Right. Big signing bonuses you read about in Major League Baseball or the NBA. You, you never hear that talk in wrestling because you just it, because it is what it is. It's fictional storyline. But the belt should represent stakes. There should be a meaning to it. It should have so much value to everybody on the roster that if you get that coveted opportunity to challenge the world heavyweight champion for the title, it's because your life could change. And so often we forget that part. We just have, oh, it's a world heavyweight title. So what? <laughs> you could get a Kia, you know? <laughs> Maybe you know, a couple, a couple, you know, a booklet of gift certificates for the Olive Garden. I mean, why does anybody care? I do a lot worse than Olive Garden. So I, I, I think, I think the answer is, you know, if there was a belt on the line and there were stakes and the, and the belt was felt important, we always hear talk about that. Or we used to, you know, oh, this guy's not making the belt feel important or the story's not like making the belt feel important. And by the way, th those were valid criticisms. And and now the belts don't matter. I, I don't think it really matters that much. Now, it does in WWE and it certainly does in your big matches. But back in the day, I think the audience tuned in for a great storyline that had stakes, whether there was a belt involved or not. Ah, oh, OK. <laughs> well, I want to switch gears just a little bit. We got oh, a very. Uh... Feel free to argue. <laughs> I don't. Did, did anyone have an argument? Well, I mean, it just. I mean, I just oh, kind of wanted. Oh, there it is. No, it's not. not so <laughs> much, right, George, it's, go ahead. It's not so much an argument. Just like, just wanted to maybe more so about reflect on <laughs> on today's environment where you have Brock Lesnar, who is the Universal Champion, but is rarely there. And like, maybe yes. how is that comparable to what you were doing back then with, let's say, Hogan defending the belt like every three, four months? Yeah, and that's a good analogy. Now, this is going to sound derisive and disrespectful, and I don't mean it to, so there's my disclaimer, Brock. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it matters if if Brock Lesnar held the Universal title or not. And I don't think anybody cares about the Universal title. It's meaningless. Who cares? I think people care about Brock. I think he's such a badass and such a larger-than-life character and, and so unbeatable that the world is waiting to see who and if anybody will come along and knock him from his throne. But I don't think there would be any more or any less interest in any of those matchups if the belt was not a part of it. Well, speaking of WWE, uh, there were reports last week that some of the talent there asked for their release. And I'm curious how you would have handled something like that back in the day when you were in charge. Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, look, clearly, you know, AEW, from what we've read, I don't have any inside information. I don't talk to anybody there. But, you know, we've all read the same things. You know, mm -hmm. if you've got the Khan family, you know, budgeting $100 million over the course of three years to get this business off the ground, that, that, that makes room for a big talent budget. Now, I don't know what their business model is. I don't know what their plans are. I don't know what their goals are. There's so much we don't know that it's really difficult to speculate. But what we do know is 
it's a talent-driven business. And if the Khan family is willing to write a big check for Chris Jericho and they're willing to write big checks for other talent who may be in WWE but not happy, mm-hmm. um, if I were if I were in WWE, if I was Vince McMahon right now, I'd, I'd probably tie him up in as many strings as I possibly could. In fact, I'm sure he already has. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of talent in WWE that can just wake up on Monday morning and go, you know what, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go work for these guys. You know, most everybody has long-term agreements. They have problem and wouldn't be surprised if they're not options out in their agreement um, by mutual agreement. There's a lot of things that would tie talent up so they can't just wake up, you know, on one, one morning and decide to leave the next. So I would, but I would tie them up. If that wasn't the case, to answer your question, Chrissy, I would keep them tied up as much as I could just to make it difficult for the competition to build a roster and a brand off of my talent. Right. Mm. Yeah. Not that anybody but, would ever do that. <laughs> but I mean, like, that but, that's ludicrous. Who would think of something like that? But if somebody, if somebody was asking for their release in that situation, what do you do? Do you do you set them aside? Do you do you book them? Do you put them on TV? Like, what what do you do with that talent when you know that they're unhappy and want their release? It depends who they are. I mean, <laughs> look if if it's really serious competition and you're protecting your company. You know, let's pretend we don't know Vince McMahon. His name is Joe Blow. If Joe Blow, you know, his his life, his his career, his family business all comes down to how well he can protect his business, guess what the answer is going to be? If you're valuable to me, it's not going to be positive. You're not going to get what you want. I'm not going to make it easy for you after because this is the way I would look at it. If there's a talent on my roster who I have paid serious money to over a course of three, four, five, ten years, right? I've invested beyond the money that I paid them. I've invested a lot of resources in building that character up to a certain point. Do you think I'm, I don't care who it is. If, if it was a member of my family, I would just say, oh, sure, go ahead. Here, competition, take this asset that I've invested in over a long period of time. And because he's got to stick up his ass, he wants to leave. Okay, here you go. <laughs> That wouldn't that wouldn't happen with I, I wouldn't allow that I wouldn't let that I wouldn't put myself in that position. Well, I appreciate you t- kind of showing us the other side of that. Uh, speaking of positions, 1998. Do you see anything looking back in your shoes that you could have done that would have kept WCW going further than it did? No. Okay. No. And 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 I and look, I know I you know I bust Russo's chops all the time, deservedly so. He deserves it. <laughs> There's Vince Rousseau didn't put WCW out of business. Eric Bischoff didn't put WCW out of business. By virtue, if you really spend time and get into the granular kind of conversations that, that, that Conrad and I get into when it comes to revenue, we were making a ton of money with that huge talent budget that we had. Right. All the way up and through the beginning of 98, covering this pay-per-view and, and well into 98. Revenue wasn't the problem. The problem with WCW is that AOL – well, Time Warner first, didn't want it there. Turner, this is, you know, and people resist hearing this and, you know, they think I'm making excuses and just blaming everybody else. But this stuff has been so well documented over the years. Ted, before I got there, 
Turner Broadcasting didn't want WCW. Nobody in Turner Broadcasting wanted WCW. That was the case before I got there. After I got there, things got even worse. They were losing more money. Guys like Bill Watts were doing stupid things that were just dragging them through the mud in public relations. They were getting sued right and left over bogus lawsuits. And they were not making any money. And most executives within Turner Broadcasting at that time were so embarrassed to even have WCW within their portfolio that as a employees, you would walk through CNN Center to go to lunch and people look at you like, you know, what are you doing here? Where's your badge? Hmm. Oh, you're one of those WCW people. I mean, that was that's that was the vibe for the most part within Turner Broadcasting. Now, once we turned it around, Ted Turner got to say, see, I told you. But once Ted Turner lost, he only owned 9% of the company before all the mergers, but he was the largest shareholder and he was the chairman of the board. But once Time Warner came in, they had a whole different agenda than Ted Turner. And Ted acquiesced. He backed off. He didn't fight for WCW because it wasn't worth it wasn't a hill worth dying on in the big scheme of things with regard to the merger. So that's when Time Warner and then eventually AOL jumped on and just started unwinding WCW. They didn't do it. You know, abruptly, they didn't just pull the plug on it, but they gently put us in a sleeper and over the course of about a year and a half choked us out. Oh, God. What a beautiful analogy. I mean, one, speaking, one more speaking for of business in 1998, uh, and I'm just guessing here, did you kind of see like the NWO shirt kind of dwindling down as far as merch sales? And that's why you guys decided to say, hey, we need to do something else and still have the NWO thing, which is why you guys created the NWO red and black and sold that t-shirt and made a lot more money. Oh yeah. That's it. <laughs> but, wait, but do you think do you think people were losing interest or do you think that everybody already had the NWO shirt? They was like, "Well, now we got to get something new." Well, it was a little bit of both. Look, I, it, at the core of it, I would say 80% of the of the reason was because NWO was losing steam. If it would have been hot, we would have been able to come out with NWO jock straps. <laughs> And people would people would tailgate out in a parking lot and wear them in like hats during the George course of the show. George would have bought two. Mm. Yeah, I mean I've done that myself, <laughs> <laughs> but a long time ago. Mm. But um, I think overall it was just because the concept was no longer new. By this time it was two two and a half years old. You know, in the beginning when we flooded the market with shirts, or the audience flooded the market with shirts, it was because it was so new and so fresh. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. And it was cool. You know, it wasn't like wearing a Sting shirt or a Lex Luger shirt with him, you know, torture racking <laughs> somebody. That's a cool shirt if you're wearing it into an arena with wrestling fans. Mm -hmm. Go try to get a date in a club wearing that shirt. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. But an NWO shirt back then, you could actually get away. You might get a little lucky wearing an NWO shirt because it had an edge, but it didn't scream, I'm a wrestling fan. Yeah. So you could go to the you could go to the arena and watch the wrestling matches and then, you know, hit the club down the street and maybe have a great night without having to change your shirt. Oh, that's a great analogy. Well, sir, we appreciate you uh, I guess bearing your soul to us here tonight, and we're looking forward to hearing all about sold out two thousand next week. Oh, <laughs> Actually, you just wait. I'm loading my guns. Fact, <laughs> so, so not only load, I'm not only loading both of my guns, I got a whole truck full of ammo I'm bringing to that podcast. <laughs> so I is Vince it. Russo preemptively blocked? 
I, you know, I don't. He, here's the deal. People always say, oh, "Why do you hate Vince Russo?" I, first of all, I don't hate anybody. I, I, I mean that when I say that. I don't. I've learned not to carry hate around because it's just really, really heavy excess baggage that doesn't do any good for anybody. And I try to be really efficient in the way I approach my life. And carrying around hate and resentment and anger is just not what I do. I have zero respect for him. I think he's a fraud. I think he's just a creep. I just don't like him. He's he's lied to me and showed me his colors so many different times. And I get people all the time say, oh, you should debate him. Look, I've debated him in front of Dixie Carter, TNA's attorney, all of his <laughs> I made him cry like a little child because I revealed him for what he really is. Uh-huh. I have no de- – and I've done it in front of a whole bunch of people, by the way. So I have no desire to, to give him an audience and try to let him get himself over with his nonsense by debating him. I just call it. I call it as I see it. Now, people can disagree with me. People may think I'm full of crap. That's okay too. I get it. But I was there, I saw it, I know what he is, and I know what he isn't. So I'm looking forward to just peeling the onion skin back (laughs) and showing everybody through two hours. It's just what a fraud and a con man that piece of crap really is. That is a perfect trailer (laughs) (laughs) to break for next week's episode. That that doesn't get you hooked. I don't know what does. I already wrote down the time codes. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I love it. Well, we will see you then. Thank you so much for joining us again, Eric, and uh, have a great week. All right. Thank you guys very, very much. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Well, that will do it for After 83 Weeks. We will see you guys next week to cover Sold Out 2000. See you then. Bye-bye. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menounos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principal.